Well, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1 this morning. Did everyone receive a handout for tonight? Need one? Jonathan, can you... uh, Psalm chapter 1. When I visit people in the hospital and when I speak to Christians, particularly with only a few days left to live, you know which book to I turned more more than any other? It is the Psalms. But what is it that makes the Psalms so special? The Psalms are not only special to, to Christians on their deathbed, I hope you recognize, they're helpful to us in times of discouragement in times of joy in times of confusion um, if you turn to the back of your handout depending on how you view this it says introduction to the psalms on the top you look at the different arrangements uh, or I'm sorry the types of psalms down there at the bottom the reason that this uh, this book is so well loved most frequently quoted in the New Test or in the Old Testament in the New Testament, the most frequently quoted books of the Old Testament, um, is because it's dealing with real spiritual troubles. It's really dealing with real people. And for the most part, they're written in a way that's generic enough to be able to apply to our situation. Did you ever notice that? It's you know Sometimes it gets into the details of Israel and, and, and some of these things, but generally speaking, the Psalms are generic enough that that we can apply them to our own life as if God is speaking directly to us. And so whatever situation you find yourself, hey, look at your list there of types of psalms. If you find yourself in distress, then there are lament psalms. There are songs to to help you uh, lean towards trusting in God. Are you perplexed or confused? Then look down at, at letter E there. There are wisdom psalms that help you see what God's view of things are and that it ultimately leads towards blessings. Are you full of joy and confidence in what God has done? Well, there are 29 praise psalms and 15 thanksgiving psalms. And if you're doubting, there are nine trust psalms. And uh, that's not to mention the other kingship and covenant psalms as well. This evening we're going to dive into the psalms and draw out some valuable wisdom and encouragement for the Christian race in which we are running. But before we get into the text of Psalm chapter 1, or, or we should say Psalm number 1, because these aren't really chapters, Psalm number 1, um, before we get into that, let me begin by giving you some background information of the Psalms as a whole, and that's what this uh, side of the sheet is for. First, the arrangement of the Psalms. The arrangement of the Psalms. The collection of Psalms is unlike any book in the Bible. Um, because they are a group of poetic songs that were collected over a period of 800 years. And they were designed to be a teaching manual for worship and prayer. What is it that we're supposed to be singing about when we come together to worship God? Well, the Psalms give the answer to that question. And each of the 150 Psalms are individual standalone units, with the possible exception of Psalm 42 and 43. That seems to be one... Uh, psalm, but but other than that, they seem to be standalone units. Now think about that when you think about 
uh, in comparison to other chapters in the Bible. For example, if you were to go to Revelation chapter 4 and just read the chapter, it wouldn't make a ton of sense unless you read the surrounding chapters. If you were to go to Esther chapter 6, you could read that chapter and maybe have a little bit of an idea of what's going on, but if without reading the chapters around it, you probably wouldn't have a good idea of what it means. That's because those chapters were designed to be within a larger section. We're really just reading sections of a larger book. But with the Psalms, they are standalone units so that they can, uh, they can be drawn out. We can understand one Psalm all by itself without, uh, without reading the Psalms around it. Do you see? And uh, that's because they have a different style and purpose. It's not a narrative. You know, you don't start at the beginning of Psalm and the Psalms and read a story about what's happening in the life of a songwriter or something. It's it's they are standalone um, songs that are arranged into five books. They're arranged into five books, and it's, and I've just laid them out there for you, um, just for your information. Um, there, there seems to be a common theme that runs through the whole thing that, that whoever it was that collected all these psalms and put them together um, very well could have been David, although since it was an, over an 800-year period, it could have been somebody later during the... Uh, probably some, someone later. He may have collected the first book or the first two books. And when I say that, okay, look at your sheet there, Psalms 1 through 72, something like that. And then somebody from after the exile would have had to do the rest because really this was put together after the exile. And it seems to be that what the the arranger of the Psalms did was he he set up at the beginning an introduction to what the Psalms are supposed to be about. So notice Psalm 1.1, How blessed is the man. Okay, then look at the last verse of chapter 2 and the very last line. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, so it seems as if the psalmist is saying, Psalm chapter 2, we're going to look at next week, God is ruler over all things, and you, as a believer, are going to be blessed if you submit yourself to His rule. Okay, so that seems to be what the psalms are about. And then chapters 145 through 150, if we were to go there, you would see that the common theme in those chapters are praise. So that's why I would state the overall theme of the book of Psalms you see at the top of your sheet there. Because God is ruler over all, we must praise Him. Because God is ruler over all, chapters 1 and 2, and then you see this running throughout, the result, the response of us ought to be one of praise. Now, uh, I mentioned that there are these several different psalm types, and I want to just briefly go through them just to show you that um, okay, we can't read all the psalms in the same way. You know, when you go to a narrative, you read it like you read a regular story. You, you read it with a plot line that there is an antagonist and a protagonist, and that there is a you know there's a conflict that's generated, and that, that there's a climax and then a resolution. Okay, just like you would watch any movie or read any story, that's how you read a narrative. If you read the uh, the epistles, Paul's letters. You read them uh, uh, like a letter. You you have the, the person who sent it, the person who's receiving it, but then you also recognize that he's often writing theological truth, and so you, you have to read it that way. Well, when you're reading the Psalms, you have to read them within these certain types. 
And these were um, drawn out uh, for me most clearly by my professor, Dr. McCabe, an Old Testament professor at the seminary, and in his um, uh, little paper that he put together called Understanding the Psalms. So first, the laments. These are the most frequently used. That's why they're first. There are 65 of them. And they move from mourning to trust. So if we thought about Psalm 42, uh, I mentioned earlier, Psalm 42 and 43 seem to be a couplet. And if you think about that psalm, it is, Why are you in despair, O my soul? It actually begins with, As the deer pants for the water. You're familiar with that verse. But later on, several times it says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why so downcast within me? You know what the response is? Hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So are there Christians who are distressed, who are discouraged? Are there believers that are are distressed about life? Well, here's where you go. You go to the Psalms and you read this like a lament because he's sorry about some of the things that are happening in his world. Maybe the way that God is even dealing with him. But it always leads to... uh, turning the, the, the reader or the singer to a point of praise that I ultimately need to put my fix my hope on, on God. And so in times of distress, that's why the psalms are so helpful. That's a lament psalm. Next is the praise psalm. Obviously, there's an emphasis on praise to God, and these are very prevalent, especially towards the end of the psalms, 145 to 150 I mentioned earlier. Then you have the kingship and covenant psalms. Psalm 2 is an example of that. This uh, shows loyalty to uh, the covenant that the the singer ought to show loyalty to the covenant or to the theocratic king. For them, that would have been like David. He would have been the theocratic king at the time or Solomon. But it ultimately, uh, or there are other psalms that show loyalty to God as the king. And that's what Psalm chapter 2 is about. We'll get into that next week. Then there are... um, Thanksgiving psalms, obviously giving thanks to God for responding to a request. And then wisdom psalms, this is one of them that we're going to look at tonight, Psalm chapter 1. Another one is Psalm 119. You know Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and just filled with great uh, jewels of wisdom. And then there are trust psalms that we ought to trust in God and recognize His security and what that produces. So, Because we have these various types of psalms, we need to read the psalms in this way. So what I intend to do as I go through the psalms is to help point that out to you so that when you're looking at the psalms, you know how to look for, you know, this psalm is where the psalmist is going from mourning to trust. Or he's he's basically, this is a psalm of praise and, and you'll be able to see the structure in that way. In order to um, go through the Psalms, instead of going through all 150 songs that are written or collected in this book, I thought it would be helpful if we split it up into four series. Okay, So this first one I'm going to, to do just 16 Psalms, and I want to give you a, an example of each one of these that are listed on here. Obviously some of them will be used more than once. And uh, so over the next 16 times that I speak on Sunday night, we're going to be looking at some of the various psalms. And that's why you're going to see on your sermon schedule that they're not, uh, we're not going to go and hit every psalm because sometimes they, the, the types of psalms repeat themselves. And I want to just give you an idea of the various different types of psalms so that when you're looking at any psalm, when you're reading them or reflecting on them, 
you can be able to spot what kind of psalm that is and be able to interpret it properly. All right, so let's begin with Psalm chapter 1, or I should say Psalm number 1. Again, these are not chapters, and I'm going to have to correct my, my, uh, the way I speak about those. Psalm number 1, it is a wisdom psalm. Okay, so a wisdom psalm with the emphasis on trusting God's Word and being, uh, which is fundamental toward blessing. As far as the author and the setting, we do not know who wrote this. Some people, a lot, a lot of people think that this is David. Um, but it's unclear as far as what, are the, what the setting is and really um, whether he wrote it or not. We're not sure, but we do know that this is ultimately something that was preserved for us by God himself. Psalm chapter 1, let's read our passage this evening and then we'll, uh, we'll try to understand it more clearly. Psalm 1, this is the Word of God. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Tonight, in this psalm, we see that the godly person prospers in this life and in the next. The godly person prospers in this life and in the next. In verses 1-3, through we see that the godly person prospers. Why is that? Well, first, he knows where to walk. The godly person knows where to walk. He knows why and how he ought to avoid wrong associations. He knows where to walk. The psalm begins in verse 1 with blessed. The word blessed. He begins with a powerful assertion. How blessed is the one who does this? Okay, how, how utterly blessed the person is who does this. So, I could take a, a poll and ask you, do you want to be blessed by God? Okay, do you want to receive God's blessing? And I hope all of you would answer yes to that. And here's the way that you can be blessed. And that is by living a godly life. And, and the way that the godly person is blessed is because he knows where to walk. He avoids wrong associations. God blesses those who don't follow the advice of the wicked. Notice it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now what you're going to see in this first verse is parallelism. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the path of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers or of the scornful. The wicked are people first who do not walk in the... Or, um, sorry, the, the righteous are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They... These wicked people are those who do not consider the ways of God. Not necessarily because they are atheists or antagonists, but because they're people who do not pursue godliness. They're not concerned primarily with what God thinks. And that's why righteous people don't go for spiritual advice to ungodly people. They don't go to the counsel of the wicked because their their advice has little value. 
God's commands, God's laws don't matter to the wicked, do they? And they don't come into play with regard to their evaluation of things and their recommendation of things. And so as a result, we as righteous people ought not to go to the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, we ought not to stand in the path of sinners. Notice the digression here. It is walk, stand, and sit. There's a digression. First, you're, you're, um, you're just having company with these types of people, wicked people. Just kind of hanging around them. Then you're walking among them. You're, you're inter- interacting with them. And eventually, you'll be settling and living among them. The foolish person is, is positioning himself among sinners, but not, the, not so with the righteous. There's a digression of how they interact with these type of people, but there's also a digression, did you notice in the text, with the type of people with whom they interact. There is the, the wicked, first of all, and then the second line, sinners, and then third, scoffers. The wicked are those who are guilty before God. They are those who don't follow God. Sinners are those who have an inclination towards sin. That they enjoy their sin. They wallow in sin. And so the psalmist says, the wise person is the one who does not mill around looking for the counsel of those who are guilty before God. He does not walk among them, make his living among those who make it their practice to sin against God. And then thirdly, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. To sit means to settle in or to live. This same word sit is used in Genesis 4.16. It's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to settling down in a location like Cain did in Genesis 4.16 after he committed his sin against Abel. He was a wanderer, and yet he, he, he settled down, it says in Genesis 4, 16. The idea is he sat. And so here's what we ought not to do with regard to scoffers. We ought not to settle down among them. Scoffers are not just people who are wicked. They're not just guilty before God. They're not people who just wallow in sin. But they are committing the most scandalous sins, and they are promoting it to others because they're so sure about their hatred toward God, and they want everybody else to hate Him in the same way. And as a righteous person, we ought not to settle down among these type of people who are opposed to God. This is the wrong sort of digression. So, you want to be blessed, you want to do the opposite of what this text is is, um, is referring to. That is, that we are not to be uh, digressing into moral laxness taking the wrong advice, leading to acting in the wrong way, and then finally becoming the wrong type of person. And uh, we, we need the transforming power of the Spirit to, to change us, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12.2 So first, the godly person knows where to walk. Secondly, the godly person knows what to love. The godly person knows what to love. He takes joy in meditating on the Word. So first, we, we saw with the righteous person what he does not do. He doesn't hang out with the wicked people. He doesn't settle down among them. But now we see positively what he does do. 
Let's look at verse 2 again. But his delight, the one who is blessed by God, this righteous person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. The godly person knows what to love. Instead of taking the advice of people who don't know God, verse 1, and who are not seeking to know God, the righteous one, the blessed one, is the man who takes advice from God's Word. And he delights in it. Did you notice that? It doesn't just say that he obeys the law of the Lord, or that he thinks about the, but he takes delight in the law of the Lord. He takes delight in what God tells him to do. This is a righteous person. You know, we, we kind of think of God's commands as restrictive. I, you know, I, I don't want to become a Christian, many people say, because it's so restrictive because of all the things I can't do. Or even some of us as Christians complain about all the rules that, that there are against what we can't do. We see all these people on the world and they seem so free. And yet, we under, if we understand freedom, we know that they're not really free, are they? They're actually enslaved to their own sin. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. So you Jews, when He's talking to them there in John chapter 8, you're not free. You know, we've never been in bondage to anyone, they say. You know, our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're a slave to your own sin. See, these people out here whom we envy because of the things that they can do, the things that they can get away with, supposedly, that is not something to be envied. Rather, our joy, our delight ought to be in the Word of God. Turn to Psalm 119. We should take great pleasure in knowing God's Word and doing it. It is not something that is restrictive. Notice how the psalmist here in Psalm 119, another wisdom psalm, notice how he just loves the law of God. He loves God's commandments for him. He doesn't see them as restrictive. Look at verse 47. I'm going to take you through several verses here and just point out his love for God's Word, God's law. Verse 47 I shall delight in your commandments which I love. Verse 48, And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 97. 97. He, he writes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 113. 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Verse 119, You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. Verse 127, 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Nothing compares really to the commandments of God. I, I value them more than, than precious gold. Verse 140, your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Verse 159, Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Verse 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Verse 167, My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. And if you were to read through the rest of this chapter, you're not going to find 
that this psalmist hates the law of God. He doesn't hate the commandments of God. He doesn't hate the Word of God, but he takes great delight in it. You can turn back to Psalm 1. It is a great joy for him. So, so, do, so do you delight in God's Word? Do you delight in the commandments of God? Here's how you can know whether you delight in God's commandments. The way that you, know, you can know is look at the second part of verse 2. If you delight in the law of the Lord, then in His law you will meditate day and night. The idea there of day and night is continually. And we ought to be continually meditating on God's Word. So ask yourself this question. Where's the first place you go when you look for advice as far as guidance is concerned for your life? Do you pray? Do you, do you go to God's Word? Does God have any part in your consideration of this next step that needs to be taken in your life? And I think we all recognize the great damage of a secular worldview of which we are constantly learning. And if we would understand the great value of the Word of God and we would take delight in it and meditate on it more, then, then we would see how blessed our lives would really be. How blessed is the one who delights in the Word of God and meditates on it continually. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from my mouth. I will meditate on it day and night. And when I do, I will have good success. His point is not that he's going to have all sorts of, uh, of earthly goods, but that he will have success in the eyes of God. This is what we ought to search for, to be blessed by God. John Frame makes a, a great statement in his theology book. He says, God's Word is worthy of our most profound meditation. God's Word is worthy of our most profound meditation. Think about that for a minute. What types of things right now are worthy of your most serious contemplation? What is it that fills up your mind when you have time to think? Is it sports? Is it a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is it advancement at a job? Maybe the pursuit of a house or, or the car that you just received or, or the pursuit of money? What is it that's worthy of your greatest meditation? The blessed one is the one who's, who takes God's Word and makes it His most profound meditation. Is not God's Word worthy of that? Is it not more eternally valuable than all the things that we spend our minds thinking about? Then why do we not do it as much as we ought? Well, there are several objections that we have. Reasons why we don't meditate on the Word of God as much as we should. Reasons why the Word of God is not a delight to us. Perhaps the first one might be as, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to med if you knew my schedule you would know that I don't have time to meditate on God's word. My dad always used to say to myself and my siblings, you have time for what you want to have time for. Right? You can make time for what is most important for you. We recognize that, don't we? We schedule our we we um we schedule our ourselves around what is most valuable to us, whether it's a job or 
you know, maybe it is a sporting event or some activity. We, we schedule our, ourselves around that. We, we make up our schedules according to that. And here's what the psalmist is saying. You want to be a blessed person, you need to delight in God's Word and you need to meditate on it continually. Make time for what is most important. Perhaps another reason we don't meditate on God's Word is because the Bible is outdated. You know, perhaps you have friends who look at you funny when you bring out this antiquated document. I mean, this has been written a couple thousand years ago now. The first part of it written several thousand years ago. I mean, how could we take value from something that is outdated? And yet, if we believe the Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is profitable. It's given by God and it is profitable. That it is relevant for everything that we face in life. And so that's a poor excuse as well. Perhaps a third excuse for why we don't meditate on the Word of God is because, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar. But nowhere in this text or in any other does it say that you have to be able to recite the Westminster Confession of Faith or be able to defend all the ten major doctrines of Scripture or be able to write a hundred-page thesis on God's existence or be able to debate against a world-renowned theologian. No. You must meditate on the Word of God. This is something that even the small of us, the youngest of us, can do. We simply have to love God, love what He has to say, and think God's thoughts after Him. That's what meditation is. We're thinking God's thoughts after what He has revealed to us. And I've said before that one of the practical ways that we can meditate on God's Word is to memorize God's Word. It is to memorize God's Word because it forces us to pour over the text, to reflect on it, to recite it in our minds, to repeat it. That's how meditation happens. We repeat, we, we recycle, we think about all the different ramifications of that verse that we're learning. It's a good way to meditate on God's Word. Think about it this way. If you are not continually, day and night, meditating on God's Word, then you are automatically being shaped by the godless society in which you live. Do you realize that the Christian life is like swimming upstream? And that if you are not swimming hard, okay, meditating, if we want to take the, the meditating idea and put that as the swimming upstream, we're not doing that. We're actually going to be floating downstream following the, the godless society in which we live. We're automatically being enculturated by them and by their wrong godless ideas. If we're not meditating on the Word of God, then we're not going to, be, we're not going to have a solid foundation. We're not going to be godly. We're not going to be blessed by God. Number... Uh, Number three there, letter C, the godly person prospers in this life. The godly person prospers in this life. Verse three, he will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water. In order for us to see what this prosperity looks like, the psalmist paints a picture for us in our, in our minds, doesn't he? This is what's so helpful about poetry. That's what these psalms are, are generally uh, designed to be, is poetry. They paint pictures for us in our minds to help us get concepts that we wouldn't otherwise get. And so here he uses the example of a tree planted by the streams of water. What are the benefits of a tree planted by the streams of water? What happens to a tree that's planted far away from water? 
What happens when there are times of drought and there, are, there is no rain? The rains are scarce. What happens to that kind of tree? Where does it give it, get its life-giving source of water? It doesn't. That's the point. And it withers up and dies. But a tree planted by the water digs its root down, roots down deep and will never be susceptible to corruption or fruitlessness. And so it is with the righteous person. If you firmly plant yourself with the Word of God as your life-giving source, if you don't follow the advice of the wicked, verse 1, but instead follow the advice of God's Word, verse 2, no matter what comes your way, no matter how hard the winds of temptation blow, you will remain healthy, growing, fruitful as a believer because your roots are planted deep into the Word of God. This is what it means to live a prosperous, successful life. There's nothing here about a huge bank account here or about great popularity. right? If you're godly, you don't walk in the way of the wicked. If you follow God's Word, you're going to have a huge bank account. You're going to be uh, really popular among your friends. No, this is talking about genuine spiritual success. It's about knowing what God wants in life and being confident in what He wants and doing it. And taking joy in life, no matter what comes. This is what the blessed person looks like. In contrast, we have the ungodly person in verses 4 and 5. Notice how it begins. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. Literally, in the Hebrew text, it says, not so, the wicked. Okay, so we've seen what it looks like to be a, a godly person, a blessed person, but not so with the wicked. The ungodly person does not receive God's blessing. The ungodly person does not receive God's blessing because they don't care about the Word of God. They're not pursuing the Word of God. They stand among wicked people. They live, they, they, they walk among sinners. They sit, they settle themselves among scoffers and they have nothing to do with God's Word or what God wants for them. And as a result, the psalmist again gives us a picture of what their lives look like. That they are like chaff which the wind drives away. You know what chaff is, don't you? When the wheat harvest comes in and is harvested, it ends up getting uh, threshed into grain and all that's left is the grain and the chaff. What's the value of the chaff? Anyone have any idea? Nothing, Right? You take the grain as it's there with the chaff and you throw it up in the air. And the, the little bit of wind that, that, that is there will blow away the chaff while the grain falls back to the ground. And that's how you, you remove the chaff from the grain. So the, so the chaff had no use, did it? And who is like the chaff in this passage? The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff. Unlike the righteous who are like the tree that can withstand the harshest of winds, the, the stiffest of winds, the wicked cannot stand even the lightest of winds, can it? Can they? A simple blow will displace them. The most startling way that this will be seen is in judgment. Look at the first part of verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. 
They're not going to be able to stand up against the judgment of God. They will be like that chaff that's just simply blown away at the word of God's at the word from God's mouth. They can't stand up under judgment. Now I hope you understand that as a righteous person, it's not that you on your own can stand up under judgment, but because you stand in Christ you can. That you are what the scriptures call justified. You are declared to be righteous even though you're not. That's the difference between the ungodly and the righteous. The ungodly gets to a place of judgment and he is blown away. He can't stand up under it. The ungodly person does not receive God's blessing. Then letter B, the ungodly person will be removed from the people whom God blesses. The ungodly person will be removed from the people whom God blesses. End of verse 5 nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Sinners are not going to be able to stand among those who assemble in righteousness. Probably a further allusion to the judgment. They're not going to be able to share in the great joys of eternal life that the, that the righteous person knows. And so we have our conclusion in verse 6. We have our conclusion. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is the psalmist talking about here in the last verse? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Is this talking about His omnipotence? That He knows what they're doing? He has an idea of what's going on in their life? I would suggest to you that it's something more than that. Yes, God does know everything that the righteous are doing, but it's something more than that. And, and the reason I know that is because there is in poetry, Hebrew poetry particularly, there is what is called parallelism. We already saw some parallelism in verse 1, right? Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not stand in, uh, in the path of sinners. Do not sit in the sea. You have that parallelism. Here, verse 6, we have what is called antithetical or contrasting parallelism. Okay, So you have the first line contrasted with the second line. Notice the contrast. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, so here's the points of similarity first before we see the contrast. Okay, the points of similarity are the way of. We have the way of the righteous in the first part of the line, or the first line, and the way of the wicked in the second part of the line. So those are the two groups of people, or the two types of lifestyles that are being contrasted. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Now, what's the difference between those two? Look at the end of verse 6. The way of the wicked will perish. So, now we can go back to the first line and see what the contrast is between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. If the way of the wicked will perish, what does it mean for the Lord to know the way of the righteous? It is that they will stand in judgment. He knows them in a special way that He will provide for them in times of judgment. He will protect them in times of judgment. We will not have to stand up under God's judgment. And so here's the point here on your handout. The godly person prospers in the next life while the ungodly perishes in the next life. The, un the, the godly person prospers in the next life and the ungodly person perishes or dies in the next life. He receives death. So now what we should see here is that both 
verse 1 begins with how blessed and verse 6 ends with the same idea. How blessed is the one who walk who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Verse 6, for the Lord blesses. That's the idea of the way of the righteous. And notice the very last verse, the very last word in verse 6. It is perish. So we have this contrast between verse 1, how blessed is the righteous one and and those who are wicked will perish. That's really the contrast that's set, set up here. The godly person will prosper in this life and in the next. So let me give you some points of application in closing and then a couple, um, uh, I should say, some points of, of principle here in closing and then I'll give you a couple applications. Number one, spiritual success does not mean financial prosperity. I said that the righteous person prospers in this life. And you might be thinking with your current lifestyle, with your current bank account, looking at other people around you that are ungodly, who have no concern for the things of God, and you see that they're prospering over you. Okay, But with regard to spiritual success, that's, I hope you understand that that's not the most important thing in this life. In fact, it's very low on the, the things of importance of this life, how much money we have. And so spiritual success does not mean financial prosperity. And that means that you, as a believer, can be successful in this life and should be successful apart from money. And so if your bank account is low, if you're behind on some of your bills, don't think that this is God's punishment of you. The way that you know whether you are uh, blessed by God is by knowing His Word and doing it. Are you doing those things? And whether or not you have money is not the point because that has nothing to do with God's desire for you, God's purposes for you, His, His desire to grant you success. Number two, spiritual success is not automatic or immediate, but it is guaranteed. It is guaranteed to those who are serious about following God that you will we saw this last week at the end of second Thessalonians or first Thessalonians chapter five. God will accomplish what he started. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Spiritual success is a process that begins at the point of salvation. That God is making you spiritually successful, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like a microwave. It's more like a seed that takes time. And perhaps there are setbacks because of lack of our roots you know, digging down deep enough or whatever the case, but it takes time, but eventually it will come up. And it is guaranteed that if we are in Christ, there will be spiritual success. And ultimately that will be seen in the next life. But it is a process that's going on from the time of our conversion to the time of our death. Number three, spiritual success requires work on our part. Okay? It, it's not something that we just kind of simply sit back and say, you know what, I'm just going to float through life and expect God to change me. Expect God to bless me. In a spiritual way. 
It requires work, doesn't it? Look at verse 2 again. He delights in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. That's work, folks. It doesn't happen just because we, you know, we're zapped into spiritual success, but, but it happens through our efforts. God expects us to do something with the resources that we've been given. Next, number four, uh, spiritual success comes to those who are serious about following God, and spiritual success comes from God. Okay, I already mentioned that. First Thessalonians chapter five. You can look up that verse. I think it's verse twenty-four. Spiritual success comes from God. And then finally, spiritual spiritual success comes when we delight in God's word. When you delight in knowing God's Word, you will trust God even when it doesn't feel like the path of righteousness is best. Have you ever been there? Where you you learned from the Scriptures what it was to do the right thing, but you didn't want to. It didn't feel right from our world's perspective. Perhaps you talked to some other people who were either immature believers or ungodly altogether, and they said, are you crazy? You're following that? Spiritual success comes when we delight in God's Word. When we delight in God's Word, we trust it to the exclusion of all the scoffers out there who are saying that's not going to work. We're so confident in God's Word because we've known it and loved it and lived it and seen it work. Luke eleven twenty eight says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Two points of application, uh, finally. Two points of application. Number one, Christian, delight to know God's word. That's what you, should, you ought to take away from this passage today. You want to be blessed by God? As a Christian, you need to take joy in knowing God's Word. Don't get to the point where it becomes boring to you or it becomes too much. I've got too much of the Word of God, so I need to get a little bit less of it. Either I need to, speak, I need to read a little bit less or I need to stop coming to church a little bit more because it's just too much. Take joy in all the opportunities that you have to know God's Word. Meditate on it day and night. Continually use, make your schedule around what is most important. Knowing God's Word. And then secondly, if you're not a Christian, genuine prosperity in this life and in the next only comes once you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I say finished because there's nothing that you can add to what Christ has already done. Okay, when I've talked about you know spiritual success requiring work, but it requires work, I'm not saying that in order for us to be accepted before God eternally, we must do something. Okay, Rather, God is the one that has to do something in us. And that's because the work of Christ is sufficient on its own. It's enough. He paid all that was necessary to pay because of our sin, because of what we deserved. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you have not trusted in Christ alone as the only means of salvation, then 
Even the best things that you do as a human will be destroyed like the, the wicked who are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You'll not be able to stand up in judgment. And so God's message for you today is to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then, when God saves you, what He calls you to do is to live a life of good works. But what I want you to understand is that the salvation is of God and that He expects you, once He saves you, to actually live a life of good works. You ought to follow a path of righteousness, but you can't do that until you've trusted in Christ. So I'd encourage you to do that. The Scriptures say it very clearly. If we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God that we deserved because of our sin. The only way that you can be saved is if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone, then He is enough. You see, the Word of God is sufficient for all that we need in life. And this great treasure of a psalm helps point us to what is most important in life. And that is that those who are blessed are the ones who are godly, those who have trusted in Christ and who are living for Christ, and those who are judged and will not prosper in this life in a God-honoring way or in the next are those who are wicked. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the wisdom in Your Word and the great treasure that it is. And we ask for Your uh, understanding that You would grant us the eyes to see, remove the scales from our eyes so that we can understand the truth of Your Word and respond to it. There are some here who do not know Christ as their Savior. May that be uh, what they have received from this message. They need to turn to Jesus Christ and to Him alone as the only means of their salvation. Because salvation is not by works. It is by grace. Help them to understand that, that it only comes through faith, that that faith is not a work, and uh, may they do that today. Help them to see the urgency of it. And then we ask for uh, those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, that we would see the great value and treasure that is Your Word, and that we would spend our greatest meditations on Your Word and not on the things of this world that are passing away. May we give ourselves fully to understanding and knowing You and loving to do Your will and follow Your commands. And we pray that You would bless us as a result of trusting in this truth that we have learned tonight. Change us, Lord. Make us to be more like Jesus Christ as You intend. We pray in His name. Amen.